It's one of the great comforts and blessed assurances to be God's people that we can join our hearts together in prayer and know that our Father in heaven hears us. So let's do that together now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, indeed, we are called to be your people. Would we not forget that it is you yourself who has called us? You have called us from darkness to light. You have called us from death to life. You have called those who were far off. And you've brought them near. You've done all these things for us. We who were, while we were yet sinners, you sent forth your Son to die for us. To not only cover our sins, but to remove them. And not only to remove them, but to remove them as far as the east is from the west. Father, you called us to yourself, but knowing that we could not come on our own, you have provided the way. You've been faithful to your promises. You've stood behind us. You've gone before us. You have ordained in all of your blessed providence the road that we would take to bring us where we are even this very minute. Father, you know the road that we took to get to this church, to get into this room this morning. You've ordained it all for your own glory, but also for our eternal good. And we glory in that this morning, and we bless you, and we bless your name, and we long that your name be known, not in not only in this place, not only more so in our own lives, but Father, we pray that that news would go outside of these walls, into this community, into our families, and beyond. Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us, that you've revealed yourself to us, that it never gets old, but that it's ever new, that we can go our whole lives plumbing the depths of this book. And every day we can learn something new and life-giving. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your faithfulness as it comes to us in your word, as you've given us promises to cling to, as you've given us a person, your son Jesus, to cling to, that we might be certain of who we are and who you are and where we are headed. We thank you for your spirit, for the life you have given us through the spirit. Father, that you have regenerated our hearts, that you've brought us to life, that you've given us life, that we are indeed new creations now. Not we will be, but we are. So we thank you for the power of your Spirit because we know that all of our best efforts fail. All of our best efforts are fleeting. But by the power of your Spirit, the things that are holy and good endure forever. Father, we thank you for your Son. Our Savior, Jesus, our great high priest, our true elder brother, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, who of his own will, in obedience to you, came down to be one of us, to call us to you, to show us you, to bring us 
home to you. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his obedience. We thank you for his righteousness. And we thank you that he laid it down at the cross and covered us with it. That now we can be called children of the living God. Father, we need you. We need your word. We need the power of your spirit. We need the work of your son in all of our lives. We need him. We need these spiritually. We need our hearts to be strengthened. We need to know what it is we believe. We need to know that you love us. Father, we need it physically. Circumstances change daily, even hourly. And it's so easy for circumstances to define us, to tell us what is and what isn't, but let us cling to the truth. Let not our circumstances hold us down, but would we know that everything that comes to us comes by you and by your hand for your purposes according to your will. Father, we pray for those who long to be with us but are hindered, whether physically emotionally we pray that you would draw near to them that you would use us as your people to reach them and to comfort them Lord, we pray for our world we pray for our state we pray for our nation we pray for all the sovereigns of this world whom you have given authority none have authority except by your hand father we pray for the comfort and assurance that nothing is happening outside of your will, but that you are orchestrating, you are writing all of history to come to your end, the end that you would have for it when our Savior Jesus comes back again and claims all the nations for himself. Father, we long to see all the nations claim you now, and we know that you've called us to make that known and to make you known that it would happen. We pray that you would use us, use our resources those things which you have so abundantly blessed us with. Use us. Use our gifts, our talents, our desires, our stations in life. Use those for the building of your kingdom and your gospel and your church. Father, above all, we pray for those who are dying because they will not renounce your name. Father, so many around the world, and we are so sheltered from it, we don't even know what all is going on, but you know, you know persecution where it's happening. We pray you would draw near to them, that you would be the God of all comfort. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would open it to us, open our hearts, that we might hear, that we might see, that we might believe that you are a good and gracious God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is indeed good once again to be with y'all this morning. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be uh, towards the end of Luke chapter 3. I'm going to spare you the genealogy in the middle, but we're going to read the first and last verses of it been looking at the Gospel of Luke at RUF at Mercer. This semester we've had five weeks so far looking at the Gospel of Luke. I entitled the sermon series Doctor Who, not because I've seen the show, but uh, because it sounded good. Luke, 
Uh, as we know, Paul identifies him in Colossians as the good physician. Luke, whom the early church unanimously believed, wrote this gospel and the book of Acts, though he never says his name here. He was a physician, and he writes, he writes in his opening verses of this gospel to a man named Theophilus, and he writes to him, telling him, I write these things that you may be certain. Luke wants us to be certain about who this Jesus is, who he claimed to be, what he did, and what it means for us. And every story that Luke includes is carefully included and crafted for that purpose. So with that in mind, let us read, beginning here, verse 21 of chapter 3, and we'll read through verse 13 of chapter 4. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now if you skip to verse 38 the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all of this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. He took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said... You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I don't know if you're much into superhero movies, but if you've paid attention at all to the movie culture over the last ten years, Superhero movies have been very big, very successful money makers. Uh, They haven't all been great movies. Some of them have been spectacular bombs. But they've all made money. Uh, They keep Hollywood going. Hollywood's not doing too good these days. Box offices at all-time lows. They need more superhero movies, I guess. But there's something about kind of the last ten years of our culture and how Hollywood has handled the superhero story or genre that I think has made it catch on. And it's this, if you look back maybe 40, 50 years at superheroes, 
Superheroes could do no wrong. That's what made them a superhero. Uh, they could, they could, you could look comically at the Batman of uh, the 60s, um, and I've seen those, believe it or not. They used to come on Comedy Central. Uh, it, it would be comically almost how, how much Bruce Wayne or Batman actually didn't know what he was doing, yet he would turn around and not know what he was doing and hit the bad guy, and the bad guy's done, right? Uh, he could do no wrong, even when he was doing wrong. But something about the superhero movies the last 10 years or so is this, what we've gotten has been characters that are very real, very flawed. They have struggles. They have inner turmoil. They don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. They don't know what to do with their powers. This is why it's been so hard for Superman to catch on uh, over the last 10 years, because Superman really is invulnerable, um, and nobody likes an invulnerable superhero these days. I, I think most specifically at the Batman movies the last few years, that Bruce Wayne, if you watch those movies... That Bruce Wayne was a deeply haunted, deeply flawed man who happened to be a caped crusader by night. Whereas most superheroes masked are their everyday common persona like a Clark Kent, right, for Superman. For Bruce Wayne, Batman was the mask. Batman covered the real struggle, the real conflict for him. And we loved him for it, or at least I did. What's funny when we get to Jesus, when we start thinking about Jesus, when we look at Jesus as the gospel writers actually portray him, we find that Jesus is something altogether different. He's not completely invincible and invulnerable like an an old-time Superman. But he's also not flawed necessarily. Well, not at all. Not to take away the necessarily. He's not flawed at all. He's flawless and he's perfect. He's the Son of God, but... He's also vulnerable. He's in the flesh. He has weakness, real weakness at times in his life because he was a man. What we get here while we read this is because what we get is this story of temptation. And the story of Jesus' temptation shows both of those, both his weakness and yet his flawlessness in equal measure. Let me read for you again Hebrews chapter 2, 17 through 18, a variation of it we had as our affirmation of faith this morning. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able... To help those who are being tempted. So I want to ask the question again with you this morning. Doctor who? Luke. Doctor Luke. Tell us who this Jesus is. Jesus, Luke wants us to be sure of the answer. And the one way that he answers that this morning is that Jesus was tempted. We've got three points there. If, you, if you're of the note-taking type, I believe you've got an outline insert. But my, The first thing I want to look at is this. That Jesus was down... For the struggle. Jesus was down for the struggle. Now, what do I mean? Look at verses 1 one and 2 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, we read those verses and we kind of just read, all, read over them because this is one of those stories that we remember. Well, yeah, Jesus went out in the wilderness and he was tempted. And it's one of those stories that we just we know it happened and we plug it away and say, yeah, that it happened. And I feel like most of us, we, we think of that story, and I think most of us think of that, this story as kind of a mere formality of Jesus' ministry. 
What do I mean? You think about the inauguration uh, of our president. Every four years, uh, whether it's a new president or a re-election, there's a big, big pomp and show for the inauguration, right? Uh, Because it's become a it's become a big show but but in the end there has to come a point in time where the new guy puts his hand on the bible says some words and then he's the president like we have to have that happen he got elected he's not the president when he was elected but everybody knows he's going to be but there has to be that moment just kind of that formality now we've made it a big show but it has to happen it's one of those he's the president now we've got to do it i think we think of the temptations like that well, Jesus was the Son of God. He's come to be the Savior, so he had to be tempted. So he kind of had to go out there and just do this so that we could say he was tempted. But is that what's really going on? I, I want you to think for yourself. If you were just asked out in the, on the street and you only had five, two seconds to give an answer, how would you answer this question? How or why did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil? How or why Did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil? I'm willing to bet that a vast majority of all people would say this. Because he was the son of God. And I I think that's true. But let's think about this. How or why did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil? Let me go over Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 again. Made like us in every respect that he might be our faithful high priest. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are also being tempted. I want to make a suggestion to you this morning. If the answer to the question, how did Jesus resist the temptations, if that answer is only and merely because he was the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 2 then cannot be true. If the answer to the question, how did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil, is only because he was God, Hebrews chapter 2 cannot be true. There's a reason why I I like looking at this with the baptism that we read in those couple of verses and the genealogy and the temptation all together. Because think about it. Jesus has grown up now. Uh, He just got baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was the last prophet, the one whose explicit role was to prepare the way for Jesus. The Spirit has now descended on him in bodily form for people to see. Um, so he's been anointed uh, for, by the Spirit for his ministry. The Father in heaven has audibly spoken. People heard God the Father say, this is my beloved Son. He's been blessed by his Father from heaven. So Jesus is now up and on his way. And so what happens next? Suffering and temptation. Each one of the Gospels makes it clear that when Jesus was full of the Spirit and ready to begin his ministry, the first thing that happened was suffering and temptation. Mark goes so far as to say, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. Now why belabor this point? Two simple words. Prosperity gospel now we have lots of thoughts all of us different thoughts when we hear the term uh, prosperity gospel probably different people that we think of but the thing about the prosperity gospel what makes it so dangerous is that it is so much more infectious to the normal everyday american christian than any of us have really thought about it is the gospel the prosperity gospel 
in general terms, says this. Come to Jesus and get a better life. That's what the prosperity gospel says. Your best life now, as it has been very popularly said. In fact, Victoria Osteen, if you pay attention to these things, Victoria Osteen, wife of Joel Osteen, during a worship service recently, not only a few weeks ago, she said this to the room of, what, 30,000 people they have worship with them on Sunday mornings? I don't know how big that place is. She said this. She said, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. That's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Just do good for your own self. Just do good because God wants you to be happy. Now, I don't disagree that God wants you to be happy, but I don't think I necessarily agree with how she's defining that. Here's the problem with what Victoria Osteen said. Here's the problem with the incipient um, the belief in the prosperity gospel that infects us all. That's not what happened to Jesus at all. It's not. Jesus was the most full of the spirit man that has ever lived. He was God in the flesh. He was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And by the end of his ministry, one of his closest friends betrayed him. His own people falsely accused him. And he was put to death on trumped-up charges. And all of it was God's will for him. All of it. We live in an age, and I made this term up, and I think it makes sense. I googled it to make sure nobody else had come up with it before. Um, But I believe that we live in an age of karmic cynicism. Karmic cynicism. Now let me explain that. First, we all know from basic experience that life is hard. All of us. Even the most spoiled, physically maybe spoiled among us, knows that life is hard. But we all have this intrinsic belief, just like Job's friends, if you've ever read the book of Job, that if something is wrong, then someone must have messed up. We all operate on that, whether we acknowledge it or not. Karma, this belief that good choices, healthy living, automatically leads to a happy life, and the opposite yields misery. Now look, bad choices and unhealthy living yields misery. There's no denying that. But Jesus disproves the fact that if something is wrong, someone messed up. His life was at the center of God's will for all of history, and his life was defined by suffering But we're also karmic cynics. What do I mean by that? Most of us, when things go wrong and we assume someone had messed up, where's the finger pointing? It's not pointing here. Most of us, it's always pointing here. Everything in my life would be fine if not for fill in the blank. If my marriage was just happy. If my job actually yielded what it should my kids had just grown up to be what they should have been, right? This is the point of the baptism and the genealogy. Christianity never teaches Jesus takes all your troubles away. Never. It's actually Jesus himself that explicitly promised that to follow him was to carry a cross around. Put that in our terms today. Jesus said, follow me and take up your electric chair. Take up your noose. That is what Jesus said. The cross was an instrument of brutal execution. And Jesus said to follow him was to carry one around. 
Jesus was down for the struggle. He came to identify with us in our struggle so much that he took it on himself. The most perfect, look at the, the bab, think about the baptism. John preached a baptism of repentance. The most perfect, sinless man that has ever lived submitted himself to a baptism of repentance. So much so when we read it in the other gospels, John the Baptist is actually dumbfounded. He's saying, what are you doing? Why are you here? He's come to throw his lot in with sinners. He knew that's why he had come. He has a family tree. Y'all know what a family tree is good for, right? Firewood. What's a family tree? It's just a long list of people who have screwed up. It is. We know that. Jesus comes physically from a long line of sinners. David? An adulterer and a murderer. Abraham tried to give his wife away to the king of Egypt. We could go on. There's a bunch of names in there. And we could spend all morning on them, I'm sure. Jesus was down for the struggle. But what's the heart of the struggle? What is the struggle? The second thing here is the heart of the struggle. What is the heart of the struggle? What is the heart of what's going on here? Jesus was a man. He was fully man. He was born of a woman. He knew what he was getting into. He identified with sinners, and he knew that it would cost him his life. And so in his temptations, the heart of his struggle is that we see the heart of our struggle as well. Because he is who he is, in the heart of his struggle, we can see the heart of our struggle, those who would take up their cross and follow him. Look at this. Jesus emerges from the Jordan. He's anointed by the Spirit. He's blessed by God. He's ready to begin his public ministry. He emerges from the Jordan. He goes out into the wilderness and the rest of his life with two fundamental questions that he will be answering for the rest of his life. Two fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a son of God? And what is this Messiah thing going to look like? What does it mean to be a son of God? And what is this Messiah thing going to look like? Jesus, the man, the son of Adam, Luke tells us at the end of genealogy, and the son of God, he would have these two questions to wrestle with the rest of his life. And when you look at the temptations, this is what the temptations are. Satan's attempt to answer those two fundamental questions for him. That is what Satan is after. Have you thought about this? Look at the three temptations. Temptation one, Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days. Your body is eating itself at this point to stay alive. Your fast is over. Go ahead and eat. Nobody's going to know it. Nobody's here. It's just you and me. God wouldn't want his beloved son to starve, would he? Temptation two. You are the son of God. That's what you're telling me. That means you're the rightful king. All the nations should be bowing down to you and giving you power, honor, praise, and glory. I can give that to you right now. Temptation three. You're the son of God. God won't let anything happen bad happen to you. It says it right there in that B-I-B-L-E. Interesting Satan brings that up. You know what? If angels swooped in and saved you, I bet everybody would believe in you. What, uh, let's ask this honestly. What would have been the real harm in any of these? 
especially the first one. He's hungry. Forty days of no food. His body was eating itself at this point. I'm not a biologist, but I know that had to be true. I've seen it on TV, right? He really is the rightful king. Every single person in the entire world in existence at the moment he is born should have made their way to Bethlehem that night. Nobody did, only some shepherds and only because they were told by angels. And the angels actually would have helped him in a moment's notice had he asked for anything he needed. Here it is. If Jesus had done any of these, he would have been doing something that he never did. Using his power and his position to serve and meet his own needs. Had Jesus done any of these, he would be doing something that he never did, using his own power and position to meet his own needs. In other words, he would have been serving himself instead of us. In other words, he would no longer be identifying with us, the ones who need him. In other words, he would have no longer been a savior. The moment he served himself instead of us, he would no longer have been savior. Satan was offering Jesus, wait for it, his best life now. Satan was trying to get Jesus to not be a servant. He was trying to get him to avoid the cross, to avoid suffering. And it all started with bread. Think about how innocent that was. You're hungry. You need some food. I stole this illustration from Tim Keller because he has great illustrations. Uh, But there was a New York Times article about a movie called Max. uh, And it was about the early life of Adolf Hitler. And during its production, there were numerous groups that rose up in opposition to this movie. Because the movie was going to be focusing on uh, his early life, there was fear that that it would engender sympathy for him, for the man, for the myth, the legend, right? And the director... In this article, he says he suddenly realized as they were making the movie and going through the story of Hitler's early life that he had always thought of Hitler as a monster, that Hitler had just been like spawned. He had been a monster his whole life. But what he says in the article is that he was seeing that it was actually his daily mundane choices that led him to be who he became. And this is how he says it. He says, it hit me. Hitler, who I always thought, as a de- always thought of as a demented monster who wasn't human at all, was really just like us. He wasn't born a monster or spawned a monster. He actually decided to become a monster because he tried becoming an artist. And he found that becoming a monster was easier. The movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes. The audience knows all about them already. This is about his small sins, his emotional cowardice. His relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way he collects and nurtures offenses. Hitler, like Osama or Saddam or Milosevic, obliges us by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil. But nobody wakes up one day and slaughters thousands. They make choices one at a time. That's powerful, I think, because you think about this. Every single day, you and I are faced with a myriad of choices. Every day. And they all, all of them for the Christian, hinge on two fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a child of God? And what is this Christian thing going to look like in my life? 
How you in your every day answer those two questions is the heart of the struggle of the Christian life. That's it. Our lives are filled day in and day out with instances of people at every turn failing to meet our expectations. Let's admit that right now. Our lives day in and day out are filled with instances of people failing to meet our expectations. The question is, how are you going to deal with them? How am I going to deal with the person that I know talks about me to other people? And they will not say anything to my face. How am I going to deal with that? How am I going to deal with the fact that me and my wife or me and my husband cannot love each other well? How am I going to deal with the fact that my resume at the end of the day has accolade after accolade and no one seems to appreciate it the way that they should? How am I going to deal with a son or a daughter that cannot do anything right? In basic sum, it's those times in our lives when we ask the question, when did my life start falling apart? That's the karmic cynicism there, right? And here's the question, simple question. Could it have anything to do with this, that there was some moment that you decided that the world existed to meet your needs? Could that be at all anything to do with it? Jesus was faced with that same question. Jesus, doesn't this world exist to meet your needs? Well, in a sense, yes, because it was made by him, through him, and for him. But in this moment, he says, no, I'm dependent on God alone. He also says there's a better way. What is that better way? And this is what we'll close with. God, he was down for the struggle. We see now what the heart of the struggle was. But how is it that Jesus rose above the struggle? There's a better way. And it's twofold. First, there's a practical answer. And second, there's a more foundational one. First, the practical answer is this. You look at the three temptations and you look at Jesus' three answers and what does he say? Every single time, it is written. It is written. Jesus responds to each of Satan's ploys with Scripture. What does it mean to be a son of God? What is this Messiah thing going to look like? For Jesus, Scripture was his immediate go-to. Now, this is funny. You know, when you, when you preach about Scripture and you read in, you know, Jesus read his Bible... Everybody in the room just all of a sudden just kind of put up, bows their head, and they're all shamed, right? Because I don't read my Bible enough. I know that happens with college students. You just see just the, oh, no, I don't read my Bible. But think about it. Think about how, just think about actually the implications of what Jesus does here. You do need to read your Bible more. We do need to memorize Scripture more. But think about what Jesus does here, how remarkable this is. Jesus was suffering. He was in the wilderness without food for 40 days. Satan starts talking to him about bread, real bread. I don't know if that might not do anything for you. It does a lot for me. I love bread. And Jesus says, no, I've got it because I've got the word of God. Now, if you're honest, you think to yourself, wait, I thought Jesus was actually supposed to sympathize with us. Nobody does that. I thought Jesus was supposed to be real. But think about this. One, Jesus isn't just throwing verses at the devil. The devil knows and quotes scripture too. What is it that Jesus gets that we don't? I heard this saying one time, and I love it. It's called, he, uh, it was in a sermon unrelated to this. The preacher said, narrative 
fuels lifestyle. The story you believe about life fuels the way in which you live. Think about this. Jesus knew, growing up with his mama telling him, growing up reading it in the scripture, that if this story is true, this one right here, then it is ultimate reality. And if it is ultimate reality, when false versions of reality are presented to us, we can knowledgeably reject them as false because we have the truth. That is what Jesus did. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, Jesus says, I know I am because God told me so. That's what he says. Why do I keep screwing up? Why am I not satisfied at this stage in life, given all the things that I've done up until this point? Why can I not die to the unreal expectations of being involved in everything? And that's what the meaning of life is. The struggle to find the answer to those questions is you're believing and telling yourself another story than the one that we find in this gospel. Unless this story penetrates us to the point where we see our lives through it, there's no power in it. No amount of external force will do anything. That's the practical answer. It is written. But second and finally, the parallels in this story are what are so striking. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, reminiscent of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, Whereas they wandered and grumbled, Jesus is perfectly faithful and obedient. All of Jesus' responses, those three quotes of Scripture, can all be found in Deuteronomy 6 through 9. Deuteronomy literally means second law. It's the second giving of the law. Jesus goes to the law with Satan. The law that God gave to men. The law that God gave... To men. Jesus tells the devil, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus tells Satan, God has already told men to worship him alone. God has already told men not to put him to the test. You've got to see how remarkable this is. Jesus Think about this. Jesus did not say, Satan, I'm God. You know I can't do that. He could have said that. He didn't. He deliberately empties himself of glory and power that he's due. And he puts himself in the position of a man. Under the authority and the will of the law of God identifying with his people. In other words, Jesus, once again, what he's actually come to do on the grand scale is to take the place of sinners in everything he does. In other words, he's showing us the very essence of the gospel, that he takes our place. What does it mean to be a child of God? And what does this Christian thing look like? The answer will not be found in extra effort. In extra planning, in extra determination, in extra desire, it will not be found there. Because it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's in something that He did for you. That is what makes Jesus the true hero.
It actually makes him what Paul says, the new Adam. The first Adam lived in paradise. And in the midst of abundance, he disobeyed God's word. And he served himself instead of us, his posterity. And he destined all of his posterity to life in the wilderness. Jesus left paradise to come into deliberately our wilderness. And in the midst of suffering and temptation, he obeyed even to the point of death. So that we might have life. If that doesn't make Philippians 2 jump off the page, I don't know what will Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need a hero. We need someone who knows where we are. We need someone who knows where we've been. We need someone who knows how broken we are. And Father, you've provided that on every level in your son, Jesus. Father, we need Jesus. Give him to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.